0: Thank you so much, Rick. As we continue our journey through Mark's gospel, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. It was a beautiful day about 15 years ago. And like one of the days that we've seen recently, right, is spring seems to finally have arrived and we can get out and enjoy the outdoors and, and uh, just be out with nature. It was a beautiful day about 15 years ago, but as it turns out, I wasn't outdoors. I spent all day at a doctor's office at the University of Minnesota. At the time, I had... Uh, I was living in Fargo, North Dakota, and I started to realize that I was having a hearing problem in one of my ears, and gone to a doctor, and ultimately I was referred to this specialist at the University of Minnesota. And so I spent much of the morning in his offices, and I kind of, I kind of worked my way up through his staff. I started with a nurse, and then, then the resident student, and then finally the doctor, the surgeon, came in with his resident student. And he spent maybe 10 or 15 minutes examining me using this tuning fork, putting it on various parts of my head. And then finally, and he, he seemed, I, I really deeply appreciated this because he felt like it had, he had all the time in the world for me. Finally, he rolled over the stool and he said, okay, Mr. Davis, let me explain to you what's going on. And he explained to me that in, in my right ear that, that one of the little bones in the middle ear had become overgrown. And because it was overgrown, it wasn't vibrating properly. And that had led to the loss of hearing. He kind of went into more detail about that. And then he explained uh, kind of a surgical procedure that was used to remedy the situation where he would actually go in and remove that little bone and replace it with an artificial bone. And he explained the details of this surgery. In fact, he, he even gave me the history of the procedure starting with the doctor, the surgeon. That hadn't invented that. And, and to be honest with you, as I think back on that moment, uh, that convert. by the time I walked out of that doctor's office, it felt like I just had an aha moment. In the sense that, okay, now I understand what's been going on. Now, all of a sudden, my, my situation becomes clear. I understand that, the, you know, I haven't been making this up. I really do have a hearing loss in one ear compared to the other. And, and not only that, now I understand what is needed to remedy the situation. Now, no one looks forward to having surgery. But as it turned out, this was a, a very simple day procedure. And he was quite a gifted surgeon. So, I walked out of that situation and drove back to Fargo with just this deep sense of clarity. It's like, okay, now this is making sense. Now I understand. Now I understand where I'm at and now I understand what needs to happen for me to move forward. I don't know, have you ever had situations like that, sometimes related to health or job or relationships, those kind of aha moments where all of a sudden it just feels like now you've got greater clarity in understanding what's going on and now you've got a deeper understanding of what it takes to move forward in a healthy or an appropriate way. I ask you that because this this morning is, as we come back to Mark's gospel, we're coming to the very end of the book, The tension is building. We're in the final hours leading up to Jesus' arrest and ultimate execution. But as the tension builds, as the story progresses, I think we're also gaining deeper clarity on understanding the nature and reality of Jesus' mission and why it is absolutely necessary. Furthermore, I think as we look at these scenes, we gain clarity not only in understanding Jesus as he prepares for the cross, but I think if we look carefully enough, we actually see ourselves in the story. We gain clarity on understanding our own situation as well. So with that in mind, let's now come to Mark chapter 14. As this part of Mark's gospel begins, Jesus is in Bethany. And I remember Bethany is, is just a small village just east of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And this was the kind of a standard place that Jesus stayed when he visited Jerusalem. And in the beginning of Mark 14, Jesus is at a dinner in Bethany. As he's now come to Jerusalem with his disciples for the Passover. And, and during this dinner, a woman comes in and she, she's got this very expensive perfume. And, and she anoints Jesus. She interrupts the meal. She anoints him with this expensive perfume. And apparently some that were present for the meal were bothered by this. Perhaps bothered by the Intrusion. Bothered by the audacity, and even bothered by the expense. I mean, what a waste of money. At least it appeared to be at the time. And yet, Jesus says, leave her alone. And then he makes this fascinating statement that she is anointing my body for burial. And apparently at this moment, I think in some ways it appears That it was this scene that put Judas Iscariot over the edge. Perhaps it was this moment where he's now talking about his own death. That Judas has truly become frustrated. That Jesus is not turning out to be the Messiah figure. The revolutionary leader that he had hoped for. After all, he's now talking about dying. So now we reach this point where Judas is, is willing to betray Jesus to the authorities. So the tension, right, do you feel it? The tension is rising. And this is then followed by Jesus celebrating, right, the Passover meal with his disciples. Now, they've, they've crossed over the Kidron Valley back into Jerusalem and they're in an upper room celebrating this meal together. And I think as this scene unfolds, not only do we learn more about Jesus' mission, I think we also see the depth of the problem that Jesus has come to address. Now typically, right, when we, we celebrate communion, when we gather as the church in different ways to celebrate communion, In the course of that time together, we focus on the words of Jesus, right? We focus on the reality that Jesus said, this is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you. We we look primarily at those words and we hear Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me. But as we look at this passage, let's instead pay attention to what comes before that and after that as Mark tells the story. Look at uh, verses 17 and following. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And Mark says they were, they were saddened. I think it's, it's the idea of being saddened. That it's a bit of confusion. And one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. Right? Surely it isn't me. But Jesus pushes forward. Verse twenty. it is one of the 12. He replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, notice, we then right, then we become come to the, we come to the familiar part of the communion service. But notice what happens before, right? Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And then Mark is very explicit. It's almost like we go around the room and, well, you know what? It's, that's not me. Surely it's not me. And you know, I wonder if this point <laughs> if they started looking around and looking at everyone else in the room. Right? I mean, we've already been given one clue in Mark's gospel that there could be a level of competition between the disciples. Remember James and John in chapter 10 where, you know, okay, who gets, who gets the place of preeminence, Jesus? Who gets to sit right next to you? And it becomes clear in that passage that this, this caused some tension and dissension among the disciples. So as you see this scene unfold, even before we get to Jesus saying, this is my body and this is my blood, just imagine what the atmosphere is like in this room. Just put yourself in this scene for a moment. You know, I think it would have been quite easy if you find yourself in that moment just to kind of start looking around at the other people in the room. Right, and your mind begins to replay scenes. Well, you know, I remember he asked that one question that just wasn't very respectful of Jesus when he brought that up. Or, you know, there was that time he said this, and I, I don't know where he was going with that. It seemed to be an, a, a a comment that put Jesus uh, kind of out of sorts a little bit. And maybe, maybe as they're looking around, they're, they're just replaying in their mind things that had happened that seemed to cast doubts on other people in the room. So now that Jesus has kind of dropped this bombshell about someone betraying him, I think if you're in that room, it's just natural to start kind of evaluating others and maybe comparing yourself. You know, it's not me. I bet it's that guy. So as the dinner unfolds, right? Keep this in mind. As this dinner unfolds, These mental conversations have to be going on, I think, in the minds of these disciples. It's not me, but who is it? It's not me, but I remember what he did. It's not me, but you know what? He really stepped out and did something that was that just really wasn't appropriate. He said this, and that was really demeaning to Jesus. So I think those those mental thoughts are going on in the minds of the disciples as this meal unfolds. So just think about that. Even as this dinner unfolds, where Jesus is now explaining his death and the reality of his death and the fact that he has come to give himself for all, even as this dinner unfolds, the disciples are reclining around the room and most likely they're just kind of eyeing one another going, "Mm, you know what? You don't measure up. Maybe it's you. I've been faithful, but you haven't always been there. You know what I, this seems to continue, I mean, after the mill, and I, I think Jesus is actually aware of what's going on because look at verses twenty seven and following, right? I think quite likely Jesus is aware the guys are kind of sitting around playing the blame game in their head, you know. Man, I'm going to be faithful, but he's not. I'm going to be faithful. You're the guy that's, you know, you're sitting around having those kinds of thoughts, comparing yourself. And, but notice what Jesus says in verse 27. You know what? You will all fall away, Jesus told them, right? It's almost like he's he's... Pressing back against the mind games that they're playing. You will all fall away, Jesus said. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. But then Peter speaks up. And remember, Peter, you got to love Peter. Because Peter is the guy who's willing to say what other people are thinking but are unwilling to say, right? And what does Peter say? And I think this is typical of what's been going on in the minds of the disciples around that that room. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Can I suggest to you, I think in some sense, that's what they've all been thinking. And of course, Jesus then goes on to predict the fact that even Peter would deny him. So, notice what's happening as the pressure is building, as the tension is rising around Jesus, his closest companions apparently are justifying themselves by comparing themselves to others. Those guys may fall away, but I won't. This may surprise us, but I don't think it should. I don't think it should surprise us for this reason because I think each of us know at the depth of who we are in our own way we want our lives to count. We want a sense of identity and meaning and purpose. And one of the ways to kind of establish our sense of identity, one of the ways to establish our sense of meaning and purpose, one of the ways in which to determine whether or not I'm really succeeding or not is comparing myself to other people. And I think that's what was going on around this room as Jesus is anticipating his own death. And sometimes I think that for some of us this becomes so second nature we don't even pay attention to it, right? I mean, we grow up and as kids we we compare ourselves to others, right? In terms of grades. You know not only what you made on the test, you know what everybody else made. We we also know about toys and who has what. As we got older. We compare bigger things that we own. We compare cars or at some point jobs and I wonder what they're making and how am I doing in my career compared to what they are doing and what about my house compared to their house. And Maybe as I get older at some point we have kids and then right the cycle starts to repeat itself. How am I doing as a parent compared to other people? How are my kids doing in comparison to others and and those, you know, those, those games just keep going because there's, in some sense, I, I, I want to establish my sense of identity, my sense of meaning and purpose. And one of the ways I can do that is just by comparing myself to others. And I think we do that in all kinds of seasons of life. I remember when our, when our sons were younger, when they were in uh, elementary school, one of our sons had spent the afternoon uh, visiting a friend and this, this friend was part of a very affluent family. And they had just an amazing home. And one of the unique things about their home was their home had an elevator in it. So my son comes home, and the conversation goes like this. Dad, why don't we have an elevator? <laughs> well, you realize most homes don't have elevators. Yeah, but why don't we have an elevator? Well, we don't really need one. But, Dad, we could add one. Well, you know, to add one, that's a lot of money. Oh. And then he starts putting two and two together. He's, so, Dad, he makes more money than you do. (laughs) Yes, I think he does. Oh, Dad. I still wish we had an elevator. (laughs) I'm like, can we change the conversation? I remember that. You know, can I, it's, so I, just, I mean, this is you know, a number of years. I just remember the conversation got uncomfortable. Why? Because in some ways, a did, I'm starting to feel, you know, in some little sense, like I just don't quite measure up, at least in my son's eyes at that moment, because we didn't have an elevator. And these are the kinds of games we can play. And in a real sense, these were the kinds of game, mental games the disciples were playing around that room. You know what? He may fail, but I won't. I think you know what these games can look like, don't you? At times we play them and we come out on top. Other times, and maybe these are the harder moments are when we play these games in our head. And it turns out I'm not doing so well, Right? I thought I was doing okay in my career but then I, I paid attention to what's going on with my friend and the opportunities he's having and now my, my job doesn't seem that impressive. <laughs> I thought I was doing okay as a parent but look at these people. He was walking at 11 months. My kid didn't walk until he was a year, right? He was reading at three. My kids, you know, they, look at the opportunities they're getting as parents and my kids aren't moving in the same direction. And the truth is, for some of us, the most haunting parts of our memory are those moments where we feel like we have failed compared to others who have succeeded. Do you know these kinds of mental games that we can play? The kinds of games those disciples were playing around that room? I mean, think about it. Even as Jesus is anticipating his death... They're playing these mental games. These are the guys who had heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. These are the guys who had heard Jesus talking about his rescue plan that was a bringing about salvation to all peoples. These are the guys who had seen Jesus move into the lives of hurting people, bringing healing and restoration. Yet when the pressure builds, there's still something inside that says, I may need to make sure that I'm better than the other guys in the room. And can I suggest to you, I think that in a real sense, this scene exposes the depth of our problem. It exposes the reality that the problem isn't simply the sins we commit. The problem is this, in our broken state, there is this underlying self-sufficiency, this underlying pride, this underlying belief that I need to make my life work on my own. Can I just suggest this scene exposes us? Because if we're honest, we see ourselves seated right next to those disciples going, you know what, I'm still better than he is. But even as we see the depth of our problem, I think we also see the depth of our solution. Because notice what quickly follows as they... they left the meal, they crossed back over the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, to a garden. The Mount of Olives would have been filled with olive groves in this garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, which means olive press. It's where Jesus took his disciples. And he particularly takes Peter, James, and John into this garden. He asked them to stay with him while he prays and asked them to keep watch of course, remember he just, told, just talked about the importance of keeping watch and staying awake in chapter 13. And as we see throughout the night, the disciples fail at this task. It's just another reminder that even though these disciples have been playing this comparison game at dinner, ultimately they all fail Jesus during the course of this experience. Yet while they are, are nodding off, Jesus is in deep anguish in prayer. Look at verse uh, 34. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. You know, frankly, I think it's hard for us to understand the anguish, the sorrow that Jesus is going through. And the question becomes, what's happening here? Well, I, I know your natural thing is, well, of course he's feeling anguish in the heaviness of what's happening. He's facing death, but I think it's more than that. It's not simply that he's facing, facing death. It is the reality that he is facing the wrath of God. Notice, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Notice that phrase, cup, that may seem insignificant to us. But in Jewish literature, reference to the cup could often refer to the wrath of God. Let me just show you this Old Testament quote from Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This is what Jesus is facing. This is what he is praying might be removed. Yet ultimately, his prayer is this, that the Father's will might be done. So now, as we begin to unpack this scene, I think it it can become uncomfortable, right? Talking about God's wrath can seem barbaric, ancient, outdated. Let's just talk about God's love. Yet here's the reality. God is not wrathful in spite of of being loved. God is wrathful because he is love. If you want a loving God, you also have to have an angry one. Right? Loving people get angry, not in spite of their love, but because of it. In fact, at times, the more closely you love people, the more angry you will get when they are threatened or harmed. Likewise, if there is a cause you care about deeply, when that cause is threatened, you will get angry. When we see God's wrath, we are seeing the outworking of his justice that is grounded in his love. And I realize you might want to say, well, let's let's just focus on God's love. We don't need to talk about his wrath or his justice yet. When you diminish his justice to highlight his love, you lose both to understand his love you must also understand his wrath a wrath that he takes on himself so that we might experience restoration and renewal so as the tension builds as jesus is moving towards the cross i think we're we're beginning to see not only the depth of our problem but also the depth of his solution Now this week, as we move towards Easter, can I just encourage you to reflect on the nature, the depth of what Christ has done for us. To help us keep that in mind, let me me just remind you of how Paul describes this work in Colossians 2. I think this is just a powerful passage of understanding the work of the cross and resurrection. Notice Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now notice there, he leaves us no room, right, for comparison. No room to say, well, you know, I'm just a little bit better than someone because dead is dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, in thinking about Easter this week, can I just encourage you to notice two things? First of all, notice the reality of your forgiveness. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. There's an acknowledgement of God's justice, right? Right? manifested in his wrath towards sin, but all of that he took on himself so that we could experience forgiveness. But not only do we see forgiveness, we also see freedom here because Paul says he's disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Through the work of the cross, we not only experience forgiveness, but there's a new freedom because the charge that Satan can now make against you and me has now been dismembered. And robbed of its power. Remember Jesus says in Mark's gospel. He's come to bind the strong man. And to plunder his house. So as we think about the depth of what Christ has done for us. My encouragement to you this week. Is to understand that if you were a follower of Christ. You now live in the reality of this forgiveness. And in the reality of this freedom. Freedom. You you don't have to play those mental games anymore of trying to establish yourself simply by convincing yourself that you're better than other people. That is now established through the freedom and forgiveness that only comes from the cross. Let's pray together. Gracious God as as we now watch the tension build in the circumstances leading to the cross. We also see the reality of our own brokenness. But not only the reality of our own brokenness, we see the reality of your solution. We see the reality of Jesus taking on our punishment so that we can live in forgiveness and freedom. Father, I pray that that, that, would, that truth would just come back to us this week as we now prepare for Easter. Father, for some of us, there, there are moments in our lives maybe that we're facing right now, moments in our past where we, there's this nagging sense of maybe I didn't handle that well or do that the best that I could or maybe other people handled that differently than I did. But I pray that we wouldn't get locked into those mental games that can defeat us, those mental games that the disciples were playing around the room. I pray that we would rest in the freedom and forgiveness of the cross. May that be an encouragement to us now as we prepare for Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.